Amen, amen. Yay. Hey, good morning again. It's great to see you as well. Uh, good morning, Fox Island. Great to see you guys. Uh, it's wonderful. Welcome, church at home as well. Hey, we've listened. How many of you have ever had what I'm going to describe as a really awful, super bad day? Three of you. That's, that's amazing. Yes. A really awful, super bad day. I mean, I'm telling you, like, I don't want to live that twice. I have a hard time thinking about it. But a really awful, super bad day. I had this one. When it, was, uh, it was in 1985. I was uh, at school, college, getting ready to, or I was playing college football at the time. I remember weeks before the moment, weeks, weeks before that day, just two weeks, in fact, uh, my parents dropped me off on the front lawn of Camola Hall, right across from Frazzini's Pizza in Ellensburg, Washington at CWU. I remember my big blue trunk, my, my earthly belongings all piled there underneath this huge walnut tree right there in front of campus. Just before they stopped the van <laughs> long enough, my dad leans up to me and he says, hey, just for the record, I want you to know, your mom and I uh, are getting a divorce, and when you come home for Christmas, things are going to be a lot different. Have fun at school, right? I only wish I was joking, but it was exactly how it went. It was a horrible thing. And I remember going to football practice and trying to figure out how to be a college student and play college football and just trying to figure the whole thing out. And I remember sitting there. There was one night I came home from practice, and I was sitting on my dorm room bed. And I had a, I had a roommate. His name was Alfredo Gonzalez. He spoke like three words of English. Um, great dude, but he, he and I could not talk well. I, I was trying my best, my best Spanish. He was trying his best English. Uh, he was a voracious reader, and I'm a voracious talker. So <laughs> no question. I mean, and, and I couldn't even, I could talk all I wanted to, but it was, yeah, he was, you know, do the math, right? So you can see how it went in my dorm room. I remember coming home from practice one day, but just before walking into my room, I decided to go to the mailbox because, let me know, you know, in the 80s, that's all you got, the mailbox, right? There ain't no emails. There was no text messages. It was whatever you got in the mail that was three, at least three days old, right? So I remember thinking, okay, I'm just going to open that up. So I remember laying on my dorm room bed with Alfredo working on a book over there in his bed. And I'm, I'm just laying there thinking about the conversation with my parents and thinking, oh, that's horrible, man. Like, I, I don't, that's awful, right? And so let me just open my mail. So I opened up my mail, and the first envelope I opened up, was from Yakima Valley Hospital, community hospital. I had gone, uh, I had gotten injured playing football. I, I, a linebacker hit me, or I hit him, one of the others, but all I know is I got the worst of it and ended up having to go get an MRI at the hospital in Yakima, I go down there, open up the letter, and it says, uh, Dear Mr. Powers, my suggestion from this point forward is that you never touch the football field again. You, your neck injury is very, very severe, and uh, you, uh, my suggestion or recommendation is that you never play football again. Love, Dr. Bad News. I was like, what? What? I was like looking around thinking like, is this a joke? How's this? This is my dream. I'm going to play in the NFL. That's, that's all going to work out, right? So I'm looking around the new thing and I realize like, those are two, Lord, could it get any worse? Now here's what I've learned about life. Never ask that question. <laughs> never ask the question, could it get any worse? So I saved what I thought was the best letter for last. Looked at it, and the bottom of the stack of junk slash Yakima Valley Community Hospital was a letter from my girlfriend, Polly. Right? Open it up. Smelled the envelope. Normally it has perfume on it. This one didn't. 
And I was like, okay, so open it up. Here's what it says. Lance, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> right. Sincerely, Polly. I was like, seriously? My mom and dad, my football dreams, my girlfriend, all gone in minutes. I remember thinking, Lord, could this day be any worse? You know, the children of Israel found themselves in a situation the same. The Jewish people, it was in the first century, they were dealing with James, the half-brother of Jesus. We're in the middle of a series right now on the book of James. During this particular time, the Jews who were dealing, uh, the ones, who, many of whom had been around Jesus, they saw Jesus, but this group of people were dealing with massive persecution. Some of them had been persecuted unto death. Some of them with the emperor that was there at that time, Claudius or Nero, both of those were going on, was so bad where they were literally being put to death by being dipped in hot oil and lit on fire. I mean, there was a super bad, awful day going on there like never before. James writes a letter to the persecuted church. And he tells them a few things that I want to point out to you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for helping us realize how to get through a really awful, super bad day. We need you a bunch, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. James writes this letter about how to endure a really awful, super bad day. In fact, he writes this letter to a group of people not just how to get through 24 hours of a really awful, super bad day, but on how to, how to make it successfully through suffering, right? And I'm not so sure that I've ever, other than some days like that, and I could probably compete with you on a couple of my really awful, super bad days, but when I look at some of the things that these people went through, when persecution or the word persecution shows up on the scene, my knees get a little weak, because I realized that my really awful, super bad days, compared to those really awful, super bad days, some of your really awful, super bad days, I will tell you, uh, you know what they feel like, right? The Bible says every heart knows its own pain, and your really awful, super bad day is really awful and super bad, and it hurts like crazy. I want to acknowledge that, but I want to help you today see what it is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wanted to let us know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the book of James chapter 5. Before we turn there, let me just give you a little background on who James was. I want to make sure you understand that James was, was known as the first pastor of the first Christian church. So oftentimes we don't really see that because we, we hear about Peter the evangelist or Paul this apostle, but oftentimes we, we don't hear a lot about James, but in a lot of ways he was considered the pastor of the first church. Right? Now, now, sometimes if we, if we just flew over at 10,000 feet and said to ourselves, well, of course, he was the half-brother of Jesus, of course. I want you to understand something. It didn't all go well for James early on. Matthew 13, 55 and 56 say this. Jesus was a carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, or Judas. And all his sisters were among us. In other words, Jesus had some family members. Look what it says in John chapter 7, verse 2. This we may or may not know of. This was before Jesus was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead. 
Chapter 7, verse 2 says this, But soon it was time for the festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers urged him to go to Judea for the celebration. Go where your followers can see your miracles, they scoffed. This is his brother. This is James. You can't become that public figure if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, then prove it to the world, Jesus. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. I just have a question. What would it take for James to go from this snarling, sniveling, scoffing brother to being known as pastor, actually known as camel knees because he spent so much time praying for the church? What sends a guy from being this antagonist, this crazy guy, to being an absolute willing to give his life person? You know, you know, who I th- you know, what, I think, you know what I think has to happen to go from that person to this person? Well, seeing your brother dead come back to life could be a start. When you know that I've known this Jesus, I saw him when he was little, I know everything about him, but now I see him alive when we saw him dead. This, to me, lends itself so clearly. Let me tell you, brothers, they're, they're, when you were scoffing about your brother being saying he was the Messiah, you don't stand around and lie after that. You stand up and say, hang on, I was wrong. This Jesus really is the Messiah. I saw him dead, and I saw him alive. Come on. Interesting, isn't it? James chapter 1, verse 1, talking about James, tells us some interesting parts about who he is. It says, interestingly enough, this is a letter from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you the last couple of weeks, and even over the last couple of years, that this, this word slave is, is the word Greek word doulos, which literally means one who is who gives himself up to the will of another, devoting himself with his own disregard to his own interest to the interest and wills of another, will of another. In other words, James decided that he was going to serve his master Jesus, his brother, willingly. Right? Listen to this just for fun, as my wife would say, funsies. Listen to what it says. Um, many of you heard of the Jewish historian Josephus. You ever heard of him? Right? He was a Jewish historian way back when, during that time. His words were not scripture, but we also know that he was just a history writer, historian. Listen to what was written about him. Some of it's a little, uh, a little uh, I chopped it up a little bit, sorry about that. It says, in according, uh, in, according to the Jewish historian Josephus and Hagsippus, a Christian historian in the second century, shortly before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD, Jews were embracing Christianity in large numbers. Pause. Think about that for a second. Jesus raises from the dead, and there are large numbers of people now coming to know Christ. There are large numbers of people who are seeing it. And then the, second, the next word here says, and then Ananias. Remember Ananias? He's the guy who was the big, uh, big mean Jewish leader that showed up in Jesus' trial. Remember Ananias? Ananias, the high priest, and the scribes and the Pharisees assembled all of the Sanhedrin around year 62 A.D., They insisted that James, the half-brother of Jesus, proclaim from one of the galleries of the temple that Jesus was not the Messiah. Instead, James cried out that Jesus was the Son of God and the judge of the world. This enraged his enemies, so they hurled him down to the ground and stoned him. After the stoning, while he was still barely alive, a charitable bystander ended his life with a club. While James was on his knees praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was James. This is James. Who at his very last breath found himself 
doing what he'd always done, which was to pray for you and me. Pray for the church. Pray for those who were lost and don't know. Interestingly enough, these words ring true because you remember hearing Jesus saying the same thing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We remember hearing Stephen wailing out some of the same words as he was being persecuted. This persecution was unto death. This literally in this moment, this was the climate socially. This was the climate politically. This is what was going on. Persecution has a way of bringing the real you to the surface. Persecution has a way of bringing you up and out. Persecution has a way of exposing the real genuine you. It's amazing to me when I think about the people of old who stood the test of the persecution and what showed up in the midst of those times. There's times when I say, oh, well done, way to go, that's awesome. And then the Lord shines the light on me and says, Lance, what will you do when that persecution comes on you? Everything inside of me wants to say that I'll kneel on the ground with my hands raised and say, forgive them for they know not what they do. My fear is I'll have a rock in my hand wanting to chuck it back. Come on, don't look at me like that. Right? You just think to yourself, like, hang on a second, hang on a second. I mean, literally, all he had to do was just acquiesce to the moment and say, like, ah, you know, Jesus was a good dude. Get away from it. And then he could get back at the business of preaching. You know what he did? He said, no. I will stand for what is true. I will kneel for what is right. This is James. This is the writer, the one who talked about the persecution of the church. James chapter 5 literally is this encapsulated moment where, where he's coming down to the end of his epistle or his letter, whatever you want to call it. Gets to the point where he's like, guys, I want you to understand how to deal with suffering. I want you to understand how to deal with persecution because here's the deal. You're going to face it. It's going to hit us all. We're going to walk into persecution like you've never seen before, church. And because I'm a bit of a, of, a, of a Bible nerd, I can tell you that looking at the signs over the times, and again, I'm sure every pastor has said this at some point, but I don't know, man. It looks like it's getting pretty close. All I'm saying is, is my friends, please pay attention. Because if persecution or suffering shows up in your world, you need to know how to walk it out. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about how to suffer well. How to walk through persecution well. Right? I'm not sure many people are going to download this one. But I want you to know how to walk this out. James was writing to two basic groups of people. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, that we talked about a couple weeks ago, literally, James was writing to two groups of people. Those with stuff and those without stuff. In other words, James was writing to people who were rich and the people who were needy. Interestingly enough, he wasn't writing to rich people who weren't persecuted. He was writing to rich and needy who were both being persecuted. In other words, your social or financial strata or status doesn't keep you from persecution, my brother. Your ability socially didn't keep you out of the hot water of persecution, my sister. I want you to understand that James is writing to a persecuted people, those with and those without. We get the picture? Like he's talking to, as my sister from Tennessee would say, y'all. Come on. 
James chapter 5. I love the fact that his basic, uh, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we're going to start in verse 13, but 5 through 12, literally, it's so funny. Because it, it, what he's literally saying is this. Hey, uh, guys, you with stuff, stop being so stingy with your stuff. And you who are being uh, persecuted and you don't have stuff, those of you who are needy, stop grumbling about your situation. That's the first 12 verses. Those of you with stuff, stop being stingy. Those of you who need stuff, stop grumbling about your situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Like literally, that's what he was saying. And I was like, wow, James, you're just getting right in the ditch there. He's just going for it, right? Okay, let's go down to verse 13. He's picking up. Remember, James is talking about relationships. He's talking about how to navigate in the middle of suffering. He's talking about how to make this thing make sense in the middle of the water getting hot. And he says in verse 13, Are any among you suffering? They should keep on praying about it. And those who have reason to be thankful should continually sing praises to the Lord. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make them well. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. For confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. For the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. You know, I can tell you um, there's been more than one pastor, more than one church, more than one group of people who have taken these very verses, 13 through whatever it was down there, 16, I think it was, 16, who have taken those few verses and then built upon them a prayer ministry of church. You know, those of you who are sick, come to the elders. Those of you who are suffering, you know, pray. Those of you who are not suffering, praise, all that stuff, and, and created a great outline, a great uh, uh, rubric, if you will, about how to walk out this thing called prayer in church. And can I tell you, yay, well done, well done. But I want to make sure that we understand context, 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 context. As my friend Pastor Nate would say, Bible read out of context creates cults, right? So context, right? Truly this can be used and utilized and applied towards church prayer. Amen. Really what he's talking about here is what we've been sharing. He's talking about relationships. And he's saying, y'all are going to be in it. Y'all are going to be difficult times and difficult moments. I want you to understand something. That those of you who are suffering, pray. Those of you who are not suffering so badly, praise those of you who need prayer, come on, ask for help. I, literally, he's saying that. He's saying, hey, don't forget that the prayers of righteous men and women are powerful and effective. Come on, don't take it alone. I love the fact that he just jumps right in there, right? We've turned some of this into, you know, beseech the elders and have them anoint me with oil so that I can, whatever it is. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying there might be more to the story in context that, that literally James is trying to say, understand the moment. Understand the moment. He's talking about suffering. Interestingly enough, the word suffer here in verse 13, kakapatheo, which means this, to suffer or be afflicted, in the Greek, to suffer or be afflicted, to endure hardships. Now get this, it's dealing with suffering, both physical sufferings, listen to this, and emotional sufferings. Right? So when you're dealing with being a persecuted person, you could literally be suffering the, the stoning that James had talked and had experienced, the, the, the physical suffering of loss or being kicked out or having family member, or the emotional suffering of what was once normal is no longer normal. What was once a certain way is no longer that way. Kakapatheo, literally in this Greek, literally means this, to suffer something that was, was and is no longer. 
and it's exacting an emotional and a mental and a physical toll upon you. That, my brothers and sisters, is suffering. That, my friends, we all can relate to. There's a suffering that you know that no one else knows. There's a difficulty that you've walked through that no one else has walked through, the way you've walked through it. And depending on you or your personality or how it is that you, you receive life to you can weigh far differently than even the person standing right near you. And someone can say like, man, that was so difficult for me. And someone next to them can say like, eh, it was a bump in the road. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Your, part, your pain is a real issue. Here, literally, James is saying, y'all are going to experience pain at a level that only you can endure, but it's super hard. And I get it. How you do that endurance, how you get through that trial, how you successfully navigate suffering is going to be everything for you. Here's a question I have uh, when dealing with this scenario of suffering and difficulty. Why does God allow it? Why does God allow suffering? Sometimes I wonder, I know it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I wonder this sometimes, why does God allow suffering? Is it just because he's heartless and mean? Is it because he started the globe a spinning and then just said to himself like, well, good luck, fellas. Have at it, family of God. I love you from here. Hang on tight. Is it because he doesn't care or is it because he simply can't stop it? See, why is it that God allows suffering in our lives? Over and over in Scripture, we read, and it doesn't take long to read Scripture to find somebody who's walked through suffering, but it also doesn't take long for you to look in the mirror and say you've experienced it yourself. Why does God allow good, bad things to happen to good people? Why does he allow suffering, and how is it that we're to navigate this journey? I'm so glad you're here today. You might need to share this with someone. You might need to share this with the person looking at you in the mirror. Some of you have been suffering for years. You've been walking through the, the, the pain of an inward torment that you just can't seem to shake. And when I said a few minutes ago that this also applies to some emotional suffering, some of you reared back and said, oh no. I just want you to know, God is a good God. God is a good God that wants to set you free. He brought you here so that you could hear this to set you free. He's having you watch us because he wants you to be free. He's a good, loving God. Somebody say amen. amen. God is not about watching us squirm and wriggle around on the hook in hopes that some big fish will just take us out. God loves you. Amen. James chapter 5, verse 10 examples, just a couple of verses before this one, talks about suffering. It's interesting. He uses this example in verse 10. This is an example of suffering, my dear brothers and sisters. Let's take a look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We'll give, uh, we give great honor to those who endure suffering, like Job, for example, a man who endured patiently. From his experience, we can see how the Lord's plan finally ended in good. And he is full of tenderness and mercy. You know, you read the story of the book of Job. Uh, many of you know the book of Job, right? Not Job, but Job, right? And, and some of you are like, Lance, I will steer clear from that book as all get out. Because I don't want anything to do with the book of Job. Because the book of Job is a difficult book. I, it's interesting. I've shared a little bit with you about it before. But let me just back up and tell you that the book of Job, it starts out, interestingly enough, in chapter Job. I'm going to go back there just for fun. 
Job chapter 1 starts out this way. There was a man named Job who lived in a land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God, and he stayed away from evil. Sounds good so far, doesn't it? Verse 2 says, he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and he employed many servants. Evidently, they weren't worthy of being counted. Uh, that was funny. He was, uh, in fact, the richest person in the entire area, right? Sounds so good. I mean, literally, Job is, is literally blameless, a man of character, owns lots of stuff and all that stuff, right? You ever read the Bible? And sometimes I think, sometimes we read the Bible, but we take, our, we, we take our, the, the brain out of it. I want to add your brain back to this story and just ask for a second that when you're reading a book, you know, you read a good book, and sometimes it'll, there'll be a prologue in the book, and it'll give a little setting and a little bit of what's going on. Here's what we don't have for the book of Job. We don't have the prologue. We don't have the prologue of what was going on before that. In fact, no one does, but we're kind of left to our own devices. We can kind of deduce from what happened that God was pleased with Job. It says so here. We can deduce from that happened that God had blessed Job. We see that right here. But I wonder if there could be a prologue written, what it would sound like. What would, it, what would it look like? Because we know that Job had lots of stuff going on. We know that at the end of the book of Job, just for fun, let's take a look at that before we get to the prologue. The end of the book of Job, chapter 42, says this in verse 12. So the Lord blessed Job, this is the very end, the Lord blessed Job the second half of his life even more than the beginning. For now he had been given 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 4,000 teams of oxen, I'm sorry, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, he also gave Job seven more sons, three more daughters, and he named his first daughter this, and he named his daughter that, and the third daughter that. But in verse 15, it says, In the land there were no, there were no other women as lovely as the daughters of Job, and the father put them um, in his will uh, for, uh, along with all their brothers. Right? There's just a lot there, by the way. Um, the fact that uh, his daughters were lovely. Right? Lovely. What is that? It doesn't say much about the sons. They were unlovely. I <laughs> mean, they were... Whatever, it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is this. You can do the math, right? You know that he has 14,000 sheep, which is twice as much. He has 6,000 camels, twice as much. A 1,000 team of oxen, female. You got all the math, right? He had twice as much at the end than he started with. But at some point, he gained twice as much. In other words, he had this many, but then he had two times as many in the end. You know, if I were to write a book right now about how to... Uh, how to be blessed. Can you imagine if I sent everybody to the book of Job and said, how to have twice as much than you ever started with, love Jesus, book of Job. Everybody would read it at first. Everybody would read it. In fact, there would be this moment of like, oh, how to be blessed and get twice as much as you started with. We'd all want to sign on to that. What we don't know is what it took to get there. So if I was going to write that prologue, it might look a little like this. Where is my prologue? It was a good one. <laughs> right? So, blah, 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 blah. Here we go. Nope. Pause the video. Here we go. God in heaven looked at the whole earth, and he saw jo a man who pleased him. His name was Job. For God had watched Job, loved him, served his family. He ran from evil. One day God said to himself, I love my servant Job so much. 
I have blessed him with many things. I would love to bless him with more than he has today. In fact, I would love to give him double what he has right now. The only problem is the way Job is, the more things he gets would only hurt him and not help him. I need to create capacity in my servant for Job to contain the blessing. See, what if, what if suffering has a purpose? What if suffering has a purpose? Now, this is, sounds terrible because no one wants to sign up for this, but what if suffering sounds, has a purpose? What if suffering created capacity in Job to receive more? What if there was something? I'm not saying God just wants to kick you in the shins and just say there, suffer so I can give you more stuff. I'm just saying, what if trials and, and difficulty actually stop you long enough to say, God, I need you more? Right? Did you know that, um, that nearly 70% of all lottery winners end up losing everything they have within the first five years? I mean, it doesn't matter, 100 million, 500 million, literally in five years, almost all of them go broke. All of them declare bankruptcy. Why? Because too much stuff to the wrong person can literally destroy them. But God in his greatness took Job and said, I want to give you twice as much, but in order for you to sustain twice as much, to contain twice as much, I need to open your chest up a little wider because I want to put something in you that will help you literally have capacity for more of me. See, sometimes I think suffering gets a bad rap because there's this, there's this part of suffering, who's kidding who? It hurts. Suffering stinks. Nobody wants suffering. No one wants to walk through the throes of, of a loss. No one wants to deal with uh, the pain of rejection. No one wants to deal with any of that stuff. But somehow in the midst of the suffering, because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28 says. We forget those little details that somehow God will use it all and bring back to you something we never thought he could. Because most of the time we spent with our fists raised at heaven saying, how dare you, God? How could you be so mean? Interesting. So how do you endure suffering well? Let me give you three points on how to suffer well. Number one, in order to endure suffering well, we need to get a good sit rep. Sit rep, those of you military types understand that means a situation report. In other words, to get, you need a good sit rep where you're at. In other words, you got to get a clear head on the situation, on how to endure suffering. In other words, did you cause this suffering? Did you make this mistake? Did you step into that hole? Did you deliberately walk away from God? And did you, did you incur this pain in your life because of a decision you made? That may very well have happened. Here's the good news. God is a forgiving God. And he's able to forgive any of you. Look what it says in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from every wrong. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 9.22 says this. In fact, we can say that according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was pure... Uh, Nearly everything was purified by the sprinkling of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. James 5.16 says, When you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. I love that, that you can be healed. I love that. Although, can I just tell you this? As some of you who have stepped in that hole of your own decisions, remember this. Whatever you uncover to God he will cover. But whatever you cover to God, he will eventually uncover. Because he's mad at you? No, because he wants to set you free from it. 
because it's under the cover, then literally it gets, it gets rotten and it'll hurt you. So whatever you cover, God will uncover. But whatever you uncover, God will cover. Here's the thing. Confess your sin to God and allow him to redeem you. Amen? Number two in dealing with suffering. To endure suffering well. Number two, embrace the suck. Embrace the suck. Any of you military types know that in Iraq, literally it's a military term that is, uh, deals with current situation that stinks. You have to accept and work towards getting better, not about being in denial. It's not about just putting your head in the sand, but it's about accepting the present discomfort for future success. Embracing the suck means to confront things that make you uncomfortable so that you may surmount it. John 16, says, I have told you this so that you may have peace. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I love the fact that literally embracing the suck isn't saying, well, God, I guess case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. It's about saying, okay, God, I have embraced this situation and I'm realizing that I'm in the middle of this thing, whether it was happened to me or I made this thing happen. And Jesus, right now, I'm gonna walk with you because we're gonna find some, I'm gonna get some counseling. I'm gonna get some prayer over me. Remember, this was about a relational thing when he said get the elders of the church together and pray. He wasn't necessarily only talking about physical healing. Some of you need to have somebody pray over you and literally pray over you so that you can be free. Some of you need to confess your sin as it says here in James chapter five. Why? So that everyone can know? No, confess it to God. But really, ultimately, it's about confessing to the person you hurt if at all is going to be redeemable because it might not be a point where it's a good and safe environment to do that. But talk to somebody who can help you walk that through. That's why I say see a counselor, see a pastor, somebody who can walk you through, who can anoint you with oil and pray so that you can be healed. And finally, number three, enduring stuff well, hard stuff well, suffering well. Number three, just do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Proverbs 21.3 says this, to do what's right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Doing the next right thing isn't some sort of a flippant, uh, cavalier way of living life. It's literally when you find yourself in the middle of embracing the suck after you've assessed the situation and you say to yourself, I don't know what to do. Do what's in front of you. The next prescribed thing in front of you. Not the thing that's way out there. Not the thing that's way over your head, but the next thing. Some of you literally in the middle of your anxious moment, you've gotten prayer, you're at home, you've got your TV remote in your hand. Some of you just need to turn the TV off and take a nap. Do the next right thing. Some of you go need to eat a snack. Some of you need to get a friend and go watch a movie. Come on. Don't over-spiritualize the next right thing in your life. But don't under-spiritualize the next right thing in your life. Because it's a little above. If we're going to walk out this season of suffering, you got to learn how to do the next right thing. Because when the wind car starts blowing and starts, things start getting crazy and you don't know what to do, all you need to know then at that point is, God, I just got to know what the next right thing is. Maybe it's to literally trust God with your finances. Maybe it's to give to the family renewal shelter. Maybe it's a point where you're saying, like, I just want to trust you, Jesus, and sing out praises because you're good. That night when I laid there on that bed, in that dorm room, that really awful, super bad day, I remember a passage in the book of Lamentations. 322, it says this, God, your loyal love couldn't have run out. 
Your merciful love could not have dried up. Your merciful love is brand new every morning and your faithfulness is better than I can imagine. I'm sticking with you, God. You are all I've got left. And that ain't no joke. Some of you are at that place where you're like, God, you're all I got left. And I'm gonna be honest with you, as a person who walked through a really awful, super bad season or two of my own life, when God's all that you got left, it's the most lonely, painful, amazingly peaceful place you'll ever come to. And if you don't know what that means, maybe you've not been there. You're in that really awful, super bad moment. You're like, God, I can't stand this, but I've never been closer to the peace on earth. When he's all you got, then he is all you got. Some of you have never been to that point because you get to the, you get to the edge of saying, God, you're all I got, and then you numb yourself with something or someone. Can I just challenge you to get to the point when you realize he's all you got? Because when he's all you got, you'll realize he's all you need. Said the prophet Richard Sherman. Just kidding. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Some of us are going through some really difficult times and some of us are in line for some. You're all we got. But you're really all we need. So Lord, help us today to endure suffering well. 